Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Today's investors expect more than a transaction. They want a relationship. Show how your firm merges EQ and IQ with Orion's B520, a new shareable assessment developed by Dr. Daniel Crosby that provides you with emotional and attitudinal insights into clients to facilitate more meaningful investing conversations from day one. Get started today at orion.com forward slash B520. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and I am joined today by my good friend, Adam Holt, CEO and founder of Asset Map, co-host of the Rethink Podcast, and a former financial advisor. Uh, he's here to talk to us about an exciting new category in the wealth tech space and give us his vision for the future of the industry. Morning. Good morning, Daniel. Great to see you as always. Yeah, we're off to a little bit of a late start because we're talking about guitars here. The People can't see this, but you do have a beautiful Rickenbacker bass behind you, as well as an even more beautiful beater guitar with kids stickers on it. <laughs> <laughs> Part of them, the ones, the ones that you're allowed to play and the ones that you, you, you don't play. <laughs> yeah. My kids know there's, we have, I think, uh, six, six guitars and a bass here. Two of the, two of the guitars they can touch, four of them they cannot. So, this, this is a conversation we have all the time. Absolutely. Well, hey, this is long overdue, man. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, you refer to yourself as a recovering financial planner, right? You're a, you're a yeah. former financial planner turned software entrepreneur. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? How did you move from the one field uh, to the other? And, and what was sort of the gap that you felt needed needed filling? Well, it's funny. I, I never really figured that I would be a fintech CEO. That's That wasn't the aspiration I think like many people who create new categories or new solutions, they're just trying to solve a problem for themselves. As a as a the recovering part of my financial planners, I'm still actually a CFP today just because I love the industry and I, I still have kept my roots to my firm. Although for the most part, I'm doing all my time on asset map and, and treat teaching and training and running around the country like you. The, the real evolution of this is I was just dealing with clients and households that were complicated and they wanted to understand it, and I wanted to understand what they were dealing with. So I kind of went back to my artistic roots, my architecture roots. That was the that was the pre vision of before I got as a, into a financial advice, what I thought I was going to be. And I just started diagramming what I understood: the complexity of their household, the people, the trusts, the businesses they owned, the the deals they had with their brother in law. You know, it was complicated. It didn't really fit on a traditional balance sheet, right? Our lives are a little bit more messy than that. Yeah. Just like, well, you know, we have multiple closets in our house. It's not, everything doesn't fit in one closet. So we needed a different way to explain it. And, you know, blueprinting is a great analogy, but that's how Asset Map started. And it wasn't until I showed it to other people, had a lot of success gathering assets and actually doing a good amount of estate planning, that a bunch of advisors said, hey, I'm doing the same thing on a yellow pad or a whiteboard or uh, I want to do this, but I don't know how. I can't scale it. It just takes too much time to build these drawings for everybody. Can we use your system? And that's what happened in 2012. And it, it's literally gone viral ever since. We didn't even have a marketing uh, team until this year, really. I mean, so it's amazing to see how far it's come. It's gone, gone international. We have 40 employees now. It's a big thing. That takes my time. Yeah. And so just for, 
I imagine most listeners will be familiar with Asset Map at least at a high level, but but for those who are not, it's a it's what a visual representation of someone's holdings, right? It starts there, Daniel. It, it the whole idea is that all financial professionals need to get on the same page as their clients or prospects as fast as possible, right? We tend to use financial planning as our argument for uh, analysis-driven conclusions that resulted in us earning the assets under management, right? So we did this huge analysis and, and identified that, okay, I could do better for you, or these are some areas that need attention, but that process can take two, three meetings, depending on how robust it is. But yet at the same time, every financial professional is required to do good fact-finding. And so we said, can we accelerate the time it takes to get from basic facts, general facts, to whether I can help you in the first place, right? I, I, we wanted to do financial triage, especially for this ADD generation where everybody's getting pulled in a thousand directions. The challenge was getting together all the information just so we could figure out if it's a good fit. Do I need to bring my A team with my tax attorney and my CPA and my uh, insurance and investment teams? Or is this just a triage? You know what? You need to start savings and you need some term insurance, right? And, and instead of going through these deep processes, we found it, it was just better to get on the same page fast. It turns out that most of the clients were like, hey, can I, I just want to copy the map, right? Yeah. So even though there's robust calculation engines on top of this map, we figured you need to start with getting on the same page. And that's why, I think that's why it works and resonates. So, you know, this is a behavioral finance podcast, uh, you know, and at least ostensibly. And, you know, I, I'm interested just what you've observed from, from a behavioral perspective about the advantages and sort of the superiority of having something simple and visual. Because I think there's a lot, you know, psychology, we talk a lot about saneness. Like if we want something to be powerful, we want it to be sort of psychologically vivid. And, you know, a 30-page financial plan with 10-point font is not that. So can you talk from a behavioral perspective about how this works? It's not to deprecate the 30-page report because us as technicians, we need that to get ourselves to a level of confidence that we're making at least competent decisions, correct? Yeah. Right. It, it's never perfect. None of my financial plans have ever played out the way that I projected them, despite the amount of effort and precision I thought I got. Right. So in a sense, we almost have to laugh at ourselves on our on our kind of technical preeminence around projecting the future, right? Right. God laughs at those plans, right? So, but at the same time, we need them to build confidence. We found though that, and I think your analysis is right, if you can remove the intimidation of that process by creating something that's relevant for somebody, this is a reflection of yourself, an image, an infographic of yourself. People tend to get curious about that and then they start asking questions. Hmm, what are these four boxes over here? What is the what are these three IRAs? Buddy, I was going to ask you the same question. Why do you have three IRAs? Do you need three IRAs? Is there benefit in consolidating them? Can we get them all on the same uh strategy going forward? Right. So it turns out that a lot of the aspects of, let's say, our own financial clutter tends to be off-putting to most of us, right? It's too complicated, so I don't even start to deal with it. But if we can very quickly visually organize it, imagine this, go to your closet, take everything that's in that closet, who knows what's in there, by the way, dump it on the bed, and let's literally go through it with a professional, let's say, haberdasher or a stylist. I guarantee you, all of us, if we went through this process, would find some like, oh, wow, look at this. I haven't seen this for years. Uh, does it fit? No. Why do you have it? I don't know. Should we keep it? Uh, are you ever going to wear it again? No. Let's get rid of it and make space for things that actually does do serve you, right? 
sometimes it takes that inspection process. And I fr- actually, I think, Dan, that that is a more valuable process than going through the analysis of whether you're on track for retirement. Mm, interesting. Yeah, just so interesting. So you, I don't know if you've seen this. The New York Times has like a little Twitter bot that every time a new word is used in the New York Times for the very first time, this mm-hmm. Twitter bot says, hey, you know, whatever was used for the very first time, I just want to celebrate the use of haberdasher on the standard deviation. <laughs> nice. It's the very first time the word haberdasher has been has been uttered on on this esteemed podcast. Fantastic. Cool. So, you know, I meet, of course, hundreds of uh, financial advisors every year, right, in, in my travels. And I, I notice two things about them, right? I mean, or well, they have two sort of common aspirations. Uh, one is to write a children's book. Like I cannot, I cannot tell you how many financial <laughs> advisors I have met who want to write a children's book because they see the need for you know getting young people sort of acclimated to the world of saving and investing and risk and yeah. thinking about their future. And so this is a very common, a very common sort of dream I see, and I know a handful of written some really good ones. And then the other thing that I see is a desire to be you, right? To be to to recognize a need within the business and go, okay, yeah, I, I think I could fill this need and be a fintech CEO. And I mean, that's how that's how Orion started too, right? I mean, that's the the entire genesis of of you know the the sponsor of this show and my employer is that a wealth manager saw a need and and built some tech to serve that need. What did people let's shat, let's shatter some dreams today. What, oh yeah. What do people underestimate about the difficulty of that journey and that process? There's like 10 things. If I was just to roll off the top of my head, I've gotten, this question has been asked me a bunch of times. Was it worth it? Would you do it again? Okay. I'm not going to answer the second part, but I'll put it this way. The cost of doing it, as you basically presupposed, the cost of doing it was much greater than I ever realized. But besides my own capital, but the time, it's insane. I, I I know that I probably took a 60, 70% haircut. I was on track. I was already, I'd already broken about seven figures. And I and this was in my 30s. I knew financially, but I also, but but also at the same time, there was an opportunity to do something that was game changing. And that's what motivated me to say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sacrifice what I had created going forward financially to do this and to put my own capital and to put my family through that and the, the amount of extra effort, you know how what the lifestyle of a financial advisor is. And I'd gotten to basically 20 hours a week of real work and the rest of the time showing up and having lunches, okay? So did I need to go spend 80 hours a week and, and change my whole lifestyle and now have to travel? And you know, I, it's, I don't know. I don't know that I recommend it to everybody these days that people say they have got a great idea, which everybody's got a great idea. Oh, this would be the, the next best thing. Go find a, a company that's that's you know nimble and willing to listen to you and share your idea and just you know get the royalty, do the Shark Tank thing. That's the probably the smart way to do it. <laughs> right. So you have to, if I'm hearing you, you have to, you have to have this thing burning inside of you to yeah. the point where you're willing to make the requisite sacrifices because the life of a financial advisor, at least at least the life of an established financial advisor is a pretty good life. Yep. So yeah, I, I, I see that. I see that. Okay. 
So this next one, I, you know, you, you, this came up in our, in our conversations pre-show and you said that financial planning is only getting adopted at around 40% of firms, even though sort of everyone is nominally a financial planner, there's still sort of low adoption. It's not totally surprising to me. Where is the disconnect and, and how are yeah. so many households and clients being underserved? Well, many of the financial advisors that we all know that have gotten to some level of success, you know, they got there on the backs of just being a strong entrepreneur. They took on clients they may not actually find ideal today. Maybe they don't have the right asset base or attitude or engagement and so forth. So we're tending to see that between 20 and 40% of that client base, let's say you have 100, 200 clients, maybe you have 300. We had 1,600 between us, six person, six advisors. And you know, not all of them are getting financial planning, right? Not all of them want to engage. They all, you know, they're small accounts, large accounts. We all know this 80-20 rule that basically 80% of your revenue is really coming from 20% of your clients. And very few advisors actually take the time to cull those clients back or let's say build a succession plan. So what I think is happening is that it seems that financial planning, core financial planning has been tapped out at about 40% adoption between the companies that we're talking to. And we think the reason is just because it's a longer intimidating process, multi-meeting. And and because a lot of firms still haven't moved to charging a fee for financial planning, it's almost been looked at as a, uh, that's nice to have. Maybe we'll do it once every five years for our clients. It's so robust. And financial planning, Daniel, I think has been associated with the retirement analysis, where the reality is that we both know that financial planning is about holistic decision-making. And the challenge is, is that we we have so many financial professionals who have said, I'm a financial planner, let me run a financial plan, aka retirement distribution analysis. So, right, so th there's a disconnect between, I think, what is possible with financial planning and what is actually being implemented. And, and the reason, I think, is because there was a recognition from the CFP board that advisors who were CFPs were making 50% more money than those that were not. Why is that? Because financial planning got adopted as a sales enablement process. In other words, an AUM gathering tool. If I did financial planning, I was more likely to uncover more AUM and or insurance and or annuities or the, the typical monetization strategies. And so financial planning in a way has become a standard sales enablement process for the financial services industry. That's not, I'm not saying that to you know make fun of anybody. That's what we did too. We had a process that earned trust that builds credibility called financial planning for which eventually we earned the capability to land, to land the money in our, in our, uh, custodian. Now I want to, I want to pause there because I've heard you say this before. And I think, you know, anyone who's familiar with the space at all will know that there are, you know, what Carl Richards would call real financial advisors, right? Yeah. Sort of, uh, planning focused mm -hmm. financial advisors. And then there's financial <clears throat> financial salespeople. And I think the the Carl Richards true financial advisors would draw a pretty bright line yeah. between what they do and what a financial salesperson does. And I think that planning would be the you know, to overextend the metaphor, you know, that planning would be the 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 sharpie with which they would draw that line. <laughs> The Sharpie. <laughs> the Sharpie. More, more. Very well appropriate for him. Yeah. yeah, right. So my, my question is, is this like an overly cynical view? I mean, do you really think that's what financial planning is? Is just sort of a sales, a sales carrot? 
I think financial planning has been has been uh, hijacked, mm. right? I think that, and I and, and Kitsa said this pretty well too. And Carl was just on our podcast just a couple couple weeks ago, and he, he was talking exactly about what you just said. And you know, am I cynical? No, but I recognize. Well, maybe, maybe actually, I am cynical. I think I recognize that because the industry itself is still driven so much by the typical monetization strategy, right? How people get compensated. And because that was recognized, financial planning in its purity has been becoming obscure. And the the market, the, the consumer base only knows what the professionals are touting, right? If I told you, for example, that tax work or accounting work was merely just making sure your tax returns are accurate. And that's what a majority of your interactions with CPAs were about. You would think that all CPAs basically just file your taxes, right? But the reality is that we know, if you know CPAs, you know the depth of their work, auditing, compliance, uh, tax work, advocacy, et cetera, is so much deeper and so much broad. It's just like saying an insurance guy sells you life insurance, whole life insurance. Like some of the insurance people I know, they they do incredibly deep wealth transfer, legacy planning, asset protection, privacy stuff that you would, would blow your socks off. But my point in saying this is because that the average person is start, starting to hear that financial planning is done by everybody, it's getting washed out. So when he says a true financial planner, I agree. There are still purists out there, and I think it's a growing market of fee-based financial planners. But I also think it's getting, I don't want to say it, I know property and casualty salespeople that are using financial planning tools. Why? To sell more property and casualty. Are they using the same tools that the fee-based financial planners are using because it's available for everybody? And I and so, yeah, so I, I think it is unfortunately getting washed out. So it's really incumbent upon us as financial professionals to find more ways to deliver value than just doing a retirement plan. That And I, and I want us to move away from that. Yeah. And I think, you know, the average person goes to a new financial advisor. They, they come back with a report that is basically of uh, basically a retirement plan and a retirement plan distribution. And they go, yeah, this looks right. Like, you, you know, like you said, they don't, they don't know, they don't know what else to ask for. So what's missing? Like what, what could it be versus what it is? Because I think your point's well taken. Um, incentives matter a great deal. Incentives drive me like crazy. And so if we see that financial planning is a good way to, to uncover more AUM and things like that, I'm, there's nothing wrong with that, but I think it might be, it might lead us to take a one dimensional approach to planning. So what, what else could it be? And what's the answer here? Well, that's a great question. So I think it's a smart question because it really does beg the question. Well, what, you know, Adam, if, <laughs> if that's the cynicism you have, what is, what is the alternative? And I think we discovered this over time. Why, the reason I call myself a recovering financial planner is because I learned something from that process. I learned the diligence. I learned how to technically figure out, you know, whether we have the right stuff, whether we, you know, we're we're on track for goals, retirement, education, funding, life insurance, all that fun stuff, trust, et cetera, all the requirements. But I think after being in the business for 10, 15, 25 years now, I started seeing a pattern people don't make decisions based upon that analysis. People, our consumers, ourselves, make decisions based upon a level of competency. I feel like I understand this complexity or I feel like we're we're close to understanding the complexity. And they, they recognize when there's a high cost of being wrong, I want somebody who's been through this before. 
and that that kind of like I don't have do over time. And why that's relevant is that the most valuable part of a financial professional's engagement with the client is building that confidence and showing that they're making they're helping make better decisions for them, not just once, but on an ongoing basis, right? You you talk about this all the time in terms of behavioral finance of how to how to help people make better decisions through behaviors. How do we help them change behaviors? I think our job as financial professionals is to give them confidence based upon our competence. The only way for us to do that is in the moment we meet with them, okay? The moment that an advisor or professional meets with the client is our highest level of engagement and confidence building, relationship building, everything. We're very human in that moment. It's not necessarily tech enabled, except maybe we're on Zoom, but to the extent of the operational efficiency of that, okay, great. I'm actually engaging you and talking to you and giving you confidence. In fact, I argue that advisors are earning almost all of their fee, whatever wherever they charge it, 90% in that moment, okay? The rest of it's back office stuff the client doesn't see, it's execution. Why does that matter? Advice engagement is the area that technology has not really infiltrated. They haven't. We haven't really figured out how to scale that human interaction, context, delivering ideas to the table, bringing in my team, you know, proving the value. And that's why I think this is the next, this is kind of, I don't want to say it's the last, but it's the last remaining humanized component of advice that hasn't been infiltrated by tech. And I think it's the area we need to double down on. If you've seen the most recent AI stuff from, from OpenAI and ChatGPT that's running around right now. It's mind blowing. So here's a, here's a little segue here for our mutual uh, guitar affinities. One thing that I've had it do lately is I, I try and practice guitar a little bit every day mm-hmm. and I'll say something like, hey, write me a song with a minor quote with six chord changes, a minor chord and a seventh chord or, you know, a diminished chord or whatever mm-hmm. I'm kind of looking to do. And it spits out beautiful stuff like it will give you back verse, chorus, verse, bridge in two seconds. Wait, it's writing out the musical notes as well. Well, no, it's just giving you chord changes because that's what I asked it for. I, you know, give you the chord changes, but yeah, you know, I'd say, Hey, like I want to, I want a four chord bridge, a six, you know, a six chord, you know, a six chord verse with a diminished chord and a seventh chord, like what, and it'll give you, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. I asked it the other day just because, you know, I, I saw the Twitter and the TikTok stuff going around. My kid was even bringing up a dad. I don't have to write essays anymore. Like why? Because look at this. And I tried it and I said, okay, fine, let's test it out. What's the difference between best interest regulation and the DOL? I just started with high level, right? And then I went deep and I was on, I was blown away by the level of insight and clarity in the language that it used. And I couldn't help but think, uh, well, what happens if you say, what's the difference? But what are my retirement options? And should I use an IRA or SEP? And it literally is giving me answers. And so I can't help but think that this is going to put enormous pressure on the on the literacy side, right? How do you educate people or how they're going to have resources to get the answers quickly? Advisors are going to really need to focus on, well, okay, what does all this mean? And am I helping you behaviorally stay on track and making decisions? It is the argument in many ways, Daniel, for why all of us need to get on the same page. Customers and advisors need to basically find a way to stay, make sure we're talking about the same thing. And that's what we're using Asset Map for. Because when you have your visual inventory all laid on the bed in front of you, we have something to talk about, right? That's that haberdasher. I'll bring it in twice. Now we've destroyed the haberdasher thing. It's been used two times, right? Is 
we need to give context to the decisions that they're making and then of course modify behaviors based upon what we see so that's i think the real key i i call it the original ai the advisor intelligence right you got to figure out a way to apply that to your client situation in real time so what one more application of of the open ai thing that i saw the other day it, yeah. was, it was an asset manager saying you know effectively like okay uh, here's the current economic conditions, whatever, like, you know, mid-range valuations, high inflation, you know, whatever else is going on, this level of unemployment. And it says, okay, open AI, what is done, what is done well historically, you know, what types of uh, stocks have done well historically under this sort of regime? And I, you know, don't quote me on this, but it's oh like you know, humor staples, defensive, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then it says, okay, Give me some examples of consumer staples, defensive stocks, whatever, trading at a PE under 20 today or what, you know, whatever. I'm making stuff up. <laughs> and in 30 seconds, they had created a portfolio. Now, who, how will it do? Who knows, right? I'm not, I'm not advocating for this, but it shows you that what was once the purview of yeah. TFAs from, you know, <laughs> white shoe firms in Manhattan now is sort of available to to really anyone and as i think the as i think the analytical and the technical pieces become uh cheaper and more commodified the relational piece is really all we have left i mean it's almost the last place we can hang yeah. out so you you've mentioned it now you've sort of you you've walked us into this world of advice engagement can you codify that for us a bit? Tell us what it is and like, what are some examples of advice engagement? So I, I think, you know, it's interesting. You know, the entire framework of what we've talked about with, with OpenAI, just to, to close that loop, it's all about the quality of questions. Sure. The quality of the questions predicts the quality of the answer. Financial professionals know how to ask quality questions. And as long as that is still the holdout from humanity, right? I see that you have this, this, this account, this account, that, this, uh, why, what's the purpose? What motivated you to do those things? Sometimes we find the answer is it's haphazard. That's my answer. I didn't, some guy told me to buy this annuity. I bought it, you know, what, or you know what? I didn't get to it. Or I really have some real fear about buying this insurance and I don't, I'm like, I don't want to blow money. And, and so there, the real reasons for why is really tied up in the questions. And you're right. That is the humanity driven thing. We've been using ASAP apps to basically just give us permission to ask every question. Why is that relevant? It turns out for advice engagement, this kind of junk drawer that we talked about with Craig Iskowitz and, and, and kids is also now argues that it's not the junk drawer. It's actually a huge utility drawer of technology that's coming out that's different than the typical categories of financial planning, CRM, portfolio management, whatever, risk management. It's, it's actually trying to help the advisor deliver contextual guidance proactively. Other examples of this, I said bento engines in there, right? Reach out on certain times that are appropriate for you to think about things in your life. Advisors need to scale that out. They need to send it to a hundred people. They can't pick up the phone and call them every time a kid turns 14 and now they can go to work or they can participate in a Roth or they should consider catch up, right? So these technical aspects, we need to bring ideas to the table. Other aspects of this are how do I help an advisor deliver more technical uh, insight to uh, to an to a client, I mean, give them literacy, right? So FP Pathfinder is doing that as well. So we've seen some really interesting, we'll call a motley crew in this category. But advice engagement, I, I really want everybody to pay attention to this because if humanity and that human reaction 
interaction is really what we've got left. Okay. It's not techified yet, right? How do I create relational currency between my client and they want to call me instead of Googling it or do an open AI. We need to basically be proactive and we need to expand our horizons of how we deliver advice. Okay. We need to be resourceful there. And I think that's going to be the area we want to double down on. What does AI, what does advice engagement do? It helps you scale that. Help me scale conversations fast um, that are really, you know, deemed valuable by the client. Yeah. No, those those are some great, those are some great examples. I think, you know, there's this idea of the uncanny valley, right? That a that a robot that that looks too human is kind of creepy. And I think that some people mm. have, uh, you know, we want cute robots that look like robots, not, you know, freaky robots that look 98% like a human. Because if it's 98% like a human, it's weird and sort of dystopian. And I think some people have a similar reaction to trying to technologize the most intimate and the most relational parts of the client advisor journey. What would you say to those folks and and how can technology uh how can technology and human advisors work hand in hand best for for the client's benefit? By the way, I think you're right. I, I don't I don't want tech to enter into that human environment. I, I, I tend to argue that the clients are sick of getting more tech. They don't they don't want more tech. I want more you in this relationship. Right, I want more humanity. I want more context. I want some more conversations. I want to know you're on my team. I want to know that you're you're investing in in thinking about what's in my best interest. And I just I need that knowledge because because it's a confidence business. It's a confidence business, and we need to help people get confident and so ourselves. But it is true we do need to scale if we're going to kind of retain what we'll call typical margins, um, and that means we need to do more with with less. Right. The key is, can we get to more human activity? I think the technology is just going to basically make all practice management easy. Workflows, CRMs, portfolio management, trading, rebalancing, all the things that we do that enact has to be techified. So that's all practice management back office. Front office, get the advisors to be meeting with more people all day long. Do their most productive work, which is interacting, engaging, learning, growing, investing in their customers, by helping them make better decisions. That is that is a key. We, we should be Sherpas. We should be tour guides. We should be advocates and and protectors and and educators uh, and helping them, you know, navigate life, right? That that's what I think the evolution of the advisor is going to be. It's not we're just going to rely on tech. We might dictate all the things that have to happen at the end of the meeting. You do this, do that, do that, do that, do it this way. But I don't think that's going to be differentiating anymore, Daniel. I, I really think that we're all going to be commoditized from the execution standpoint. Of course, because the marketplace of advisors is so far behind on the tech side, there will be advisors that can stand out because their execution is just great. Orion is a great example of that because if you think about how much they've they've techified the entire uh, value chain of execution. So I think that's a huge differentiator now. Eventually, I think everybody's going to be pulled into that space uh, of delivering the commodity, uh, which is basically the execution, but I think the the decision, right, the driving of that uh, proverbial car is going to be the real key to the experience that the passengers in the backseat have, right? But everybody's going to have the same basic car eventually, uh, and that can be tech. That's fine, but 
give me a driver who can handle you know potholes as well as calamity and get me to my destination safely is going to be the key you know i um i got a text this morning from a friend in in south africa and she was saying i'm sitting by some you know i'm i'm here in cape town i'm sitting by a couple of americans they're being very loud and i was like yeah sorry about that you know like you're apologizing for all Americans. <laughs> you know, she's like, they're being very loud and they're talking about how all of us are going to lose our jobs because of this open AI chat deep thing. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about that because I got this text right before we came on today. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking like, my job's not in danger because what technology allows me to do is be the most human version of myself. And I think that's true. Yeah. I think that's true of advisors too. When we automate CRM and rebalancing and asset management and, and all the sort of blocking and tackling of, of being an advisor, all that does is free us up to have better, deeper conversations, to be more about the business of connecting and less about the business of busy work, to prioritize doing the things that make us uniquely human and to offload the things that don't. So I think uh, you know, the advice business is a, is a profoundly personal business, and I think it will remain so far into the future, but it's exciting to think about how tech can enable it, right? The example you gave of getting an update to say, hey, you know, Adam's kid turned 14, you may want to reach out. That's a nice prompt, but then it's on me to call you and you have better. that conversation, you know, in a very human way and and talk about the the joys, the jo- the joys and perils of a fourteen-year-old, and, and you know what comes, what comes next. You know. Yeah, I do. I do know that. It's interesting. I would just follow on saying I, I do know, and it's funny. I asked uh, Aaron Klein about this, and we said, "What's the real big risk in our own podcast?" And he said, "The risk is advisor complacency. Advisors have have, for the most part, the ones that are most successful. Some of our peers, they have gotten very comfortable." automating, delegating everything to the point where they can basically just golf. They really don't have to do much. Uh, and the, my fear is that they're going to rest on their laurels. They're, they're going to allow technology. And then of course the next advent of robo 4.0, what I call it, robo advice 4.0, basically come and eat their lunch because they're not actually spending the time doing the human empathetic work that you just talked about. They're not doing the reach out. They're just relying on automation and they've made a practice. They made a, a money-making machine. So I think they're in, they've got, they've got a challenge behind them. They better get connected to their people real time, especially from a succession perspective. It's going to be really, really important as, uh, as we go forward to be connected with our clients in a meaningful way, which we are indispensable. Yeah. It's a beautiful place to leave it. Um, Adam, if people want to learn more about Asset Map, if they want to learn more about your podcast, where can folks find you and, and listen sure. to more of your wisdom? Absolutely, sir. Assetmap.com is the easiest way. You can certainly Google that. You'll find it. Rethink Financial Advice is our podcast and LinkedIn is the best way to connect with me. I'm happy to con- to communicate. So uh, we've used LinkedIn as our way to, to connect with the community. So happy to have engagement there. All right, sir. I will see you in Miami in a couple of weeks. And until then, thank you so much. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only 
and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.